Welcome to Media Path. I'm Louise Planker. And I'm Fritz Coleman. Oh, good. That's who I was hoping would be there. Okay, so today on the show, we share a unique and distinctive media path that parallels the journey of many baby boomers who traveled from a post-war suburban childhood into a politically active counterculture college experience and then on to an interesting and productive career path, utilizing the skills and talents acquired and harnessed along the way. It's the story of Stephen Talbot. You first met him as Gilbert Bates, best friend slash occasional shenanigans instigator to Beaver Cleaver. <laughs> Steve has spent his adult life producing, directing, and writing groundbreaking content for PBS, including Frontline, American Experience, Bill Moyers, and McNeil Lair. Steve is coming right up, but first, Jeffrey Sitkoff will tell us about his organization's upcoming Concert of Hope event to support 4.2 million homeless youth. And before we get to Jeffrey, Fritz, what have you brought to share with the class? A couple of great topics today. I'm looking forward to it. You know, I just love it when somebody hands me a stack of stuff we can brag about. Yay. This is fun. We have a great start to 2024 here at Media Path. We've been speaking with political candidates ahead of California's March primary and some incredibly talented young comedians. It's been really great for Weezy and I, combining our love of both politics and entertainment. And we're grateful for your support and glad to have you with us. Thank you for continuing to enjoy our show on Good Pods, where right now, this is unbelievable, we're number one in the top 100 Indie Media Monthly chart and number seven in both the top 100 Indie Books and top 100 Indie Politics Monthly charts. That's just awesome. We're indie kings. We are growing. We're too big for this room. Mm -hmm. And here's a recent new review we received on Apple Podcast. This is from Jerkily, or Jerkali, or Jerkalay, or Jerkwality. But anyway, (laughs) this show is a must-listen, says Jerkily. I found Media Path within the last year, and I'm hooked. Fritz and Wheezy have great chemistry that translates into fun and an informative journey through all venues of pop culture. Plus... They're welcoming amazing guests on a regular basis. Stop looking for the next podcast to binge. You just found it. Thank you. Thank you. uh, Mm J-E-R-K-A-H-L-E. Anyway, if you enjoy Media Path Podcast, please uh, consider leaving us a review. And if you do, we'll read yours on the show as well. If you want to correspond with us in a less public setting, many of our uh, listeners do, you can also send us your thoughts directly to mediapathpodcast at gmail.com. And we thank you from the bottom of our pulsing hearts for listening. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. So I am going to be recommending for its Masters of the Air. Loving it. Yes, it's on Apple Plus. Mm -hmm. What is asked of young people who go to war is beyond our imagination. We can consume a steady diet of war films, and we still won't grasp the horror and heroism of it all. Masters of the Air comes close. In the grand tradition of Saving Private Ryan and Band of Brothers, Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks bring us an experience that immerses us in the three-dimensional terror of hurtling through the sky in a tin fortress, more weapon than ride, dropping bombs and desperately trying to pick off enemy aircraft bearing down in brutal dogfights, requiring precision, skill, and steely nerve at frigid temperatures as engines, limbs, wings, and bodies are blown out of the sky. Survival odds are grim. Based on Donald L. Miller's book, Masters of the Air, follows the men of the 100th bomb group known as the Bloody 100th as they wage war from 25,000 feet conducting perilous bombing raids over Nazi Germany and occupied territories. The emotional and psychological toll and trauma of facing death while performing excruciatingly difficult physical feats is richly depicted through the glorious cinematography, the effects, the writing of John Orloff and performances by Austin Butler 
Butler, Callum Turner, Anthony Boyle, and Nate Mann. No number of World War II movies depicting our valorous and victorious efforts to save the world from tyranny will ever accurately depict the full measure of what was sacrificed. And so as our remaining World War II veterans reach the end of their journeys here on Earth, collective memory fades and the temptation reemerges to teeter towards autocracy. It's important to remind ourselves of the enormous cost of going to war as a final desperate effort to protect our freedoms. Let's fund and support Ukraine. Masters of the Air is on Apple+. Plus. <laughs> Nicely said. I like your first line and I like your last line. The first line was, it's hard to believe what was asked of these kids. Right. These were the flying fortresses, mm-hmm. the B-17s, and there were 21 and 22-year-old kids piloting those planes in the worst of all possible circumstances. And I love this thing. First of all, it's the team of Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg that did Band of Brothers, which is iconic. Mm-hmm. But also, I loved, and as you said, there have been a lot of uh, shows about you know dogfights and all that. But this is better. This is the technology and how these things were like flying jerry rigs and it was minus 50 degrees up in those things at 30,000 feet it's unbelievable really well done and i love it it's it's just nice pick it's so important get apple just to watch this yeah it really is excellent beautiful the cinematography is unbelievable and what have you brought for us and here's what i've brought for you today the greatest night in pop on netflix now when you hear the term the greatest night in pop, you think, well, that's hyperbole. But honestly, it isn't. This film is based on the making of the iconic We Are the World video, January 25th, 1985. It was the brainchild of Lionel Richie and talent manager Ken Cragen. Lionel Richie's feeling was that, taking the business model of the US Festival, spearheaded by Bob Geldof, it was time for African-American artists to do something for those in need in Africa. So the charity was called USA for Africa. The film starts with Lionel and Michael Jackson composing the song. There were amusing interludes right from the start in these composing sessions because Michael Jackson's pet chimp kept getting needing maintenance. Plus, Michael kept referring to Lionel as Lionel, like the train sets, and you couldn't get him to stop. After the song was created, they got Quincy Jones on board as producer, and they were off and running. This project was like a moonshot, because it would be nearly impossible to get the 46 of the biggest music stars on the planet together to record this song. But some cosmic timing happened. Lionel was hosting the American Music Awards the night before, January 24th, and most of the stars would be in town for the award show. So they decided to have the recording session right after the show at A&M Studios in Hollywood. Quincy and the producing uh, team were so afraid of the onslaught of fans if they found out where all these stars were headed. So they didn't even tell the stars where they were going until they got there. They also knew they only had one opportunity to make this happen. Getting people to come back for re-records or pickups would be virtually impossible. Plus, how could all these huge stars coexist in a small recording studio until 7 o'clock in the morning. Part of the reason was Quincy Jones was not only a producer, he was a skilled psychiatrist. Plus, he had a hastily drawn sign at the entrance that said it all, check your ego at the door. There are many fascinating moments, watching stars fanboying out over one another, many of them asking each other for autographs, getting the unison choruses, then the solos right. They had to calculate whose voice could follow whose effectively. For instance, they decided that Tina Turner's low, sultry voice would be powerful if followed by Steve Perry's powerful high voice. Bruce Springsteen's raspy power would be a great way to end the solos. The touching moment was watching Bob Dylan, 
being so uncomfortable in a room with these guys with, and ladies with pristine voices and afraid to lay down his track. Finally, Stevie Wonder sits at the piano and does an hysterical Bob Dylan impersonation, which loosened Bob up and Bob finally got to do himself. Waylon Jennings walked out of the session because they wanted to add some phrases in Swahili and Waylon wasn't having it. A touching moment was seeing Diana Ross actually cry when it was all over, being so sad that it was actually all over. You truly wonder... If that confluence of talent will ever happen again, the song went on to raise $60 million for African Famine Relief. I know you watched it and liked it. Well, yes, I watched it and liked it to the point where after you told me that you were going to be recommending it, and I screamed, such a thing exists, and sat at my computer and watched it instantly. I was, I'm completely obsessed by We Are the World. It's a touchstone for me because... This happened at, at sort of the dawn of my career. Yeah. And the uh, company started right around there, right? Right. And so Tony Hudson, who who I worked with at Premiere, we, we kind of had the poster on the wall. And every time we interviewed somebody from We Are the World, we would circle their face. And so we, we went after it together. And, and Tony uh, passed away of AIDS in, in the 80s. So this the, it's a precious memory for me. We Are the World was absolutely I iconic and i remember where i was when everyone was playing the record at the same time all the stations got it simultaneously yeah. i was i was at kiss fm and we were trying to pinpoint the voices we were trying to name off who the voices we heard and that was a game for a while until the video came out and you could see and you just sat in front of mtv waiting for it to come on again because it was before you could just click and hit repeat you just had to wait for it to come on we were completely obsessed if you put dion warwick and Al Jarreau and Willie Nelson in any kind of trio together, I'm in front of it. That is awesome. We Are the World is just- Who the, has the biggest stash out of that group? Right? I, I just, the way they put people together, it was just so heartwarming because you love them all and then to see them in song together because song and harmony equals love. And I, I think that's why we embrace it. Yeah. I also did the Ken Cragen event, which is Hands Across America. I was uh, working in TV at the time, and I was on the beach in Long Beach, and I couldn't see either end of what I was holding on to, but I held on to somebody's hands, and we were there for a couple hours. I went crazy. to that with my friend Martha, and we held on to strangers' hands and uh, and celebrated that moment as well. It was it was a time of giving, yeah. and everyone wanted to know before the internet, how can we connect and how can we connect to people on the other side of the world and let them know that we were trying to help. Now they would get them together on Zoom or something. It'd be, <laughs> be a whole different thing. So introduce our fantastic, talented guest. Ah, yes. Give him a chance to blow his nose and then he's gonna join us. Jeffrey okay. is here. Jeffrey Sitkoff is the president and, and founder of Doors of Change. Their stated mission is to get homeless youth off the streets of San Diego so that they can live healthy and productive lives. Welcome, Jeffrey. And by way of full disclosure, Jeffrey and I grew up together in suburban in Buffalo. Ta-da! That's why you have heart in humanity. So tell us a little uh, bit more about your organization and, and how we can help. Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, Doors of Change is a 513 organization, a nonprofit organization that has been helping homeless kids get out the streets for over 22 years. We've helped over 2,800 get safe housing and self-sufficiency. And it went by getting trust very quickly with these youth because they don't, uh, they don't trust anybody. They've been taken advantage of by so many adults in their life that uh, it really, you have to gain trust with them. And once they trust you, they ask for help. And that's how we've gotten thousands of kids 
the resources to have a better life and get off the streets. Well, you know, Jeff, I, I work with two organizations that uh, concentrate on the homeless issue in Southern California, in, in Los Angeles County specifically. And the the Salvation Army that I work with did a did a a poll a a, a a study to find out the reasons for homelessness in our area. Number one was mental health. Number two was drugs, and number three was rent, which was blowed my blew my mind. It was just hard for me to imagine people can be gainfully employed or a student but can't afford to have a place to put over their head because of rent. But as I was reading your stuff, youth homelessness is slightly different because it can be yeah. a product of a dysfunctional home. Describe yes. that. That's a great uh, question, uh, Fritz. Um, the youth are completely different than what you described because number one, 60% of the youth that we work with come from such dysfunctional families that their parents are mentally ill, their parents are drug addicts, their parents are alcoholics, and they severely injure their kids physically, sexually, emotionally, to the point it's it's not safe for them to be in their house. That's 60%. 40% nationally of the 4.2 million youth that are homeless in America today are because they are LGBTQ+. And when they come out of being gay, their parents literally kick them on the streets. That's today in 2024. Now, do you notice any improvement as there is increasing awareness that a certain amount of the pump, uh, the population just is gay, is trans, is LGBTQ? Is is that is improving on any front? I think, Louise, that I see it improving and that the response to it, that people can't believe that it's still happening and they're helping us because of it. But as far as the pan parents concerned, I don't see any change. I see it's actually getting worse. The more kids are getting kicked out. We're talking 40% of 4.2 million are homeless because they're gay. And that's today. So I, I think that in the household, that's getting worse. But as far as the response of that they're on the streets, people are saying, listen, this is unacceptable. We want to help you because of this. And so that thank God that people care about it, that you know the, the community cares about it. But the parents, uh, they still kick them out because they're gay. So you said it comes from a lack of trust of adults. How, how do you gain their trust and where do you take them after you gain their trust? That's that's a great question. Um, for 18 years, we had an award-winning music and art program that we actually taught seven instruments. We had 8,100 youth in our program and it built trust very quickly because we taught them very quickly how to master something for the first time. They master a chord in the mandolin, the ukulele, the guitar, it's amazing how their self-esteem changes. But since COVID, we had to stop that program. And so we had to reinvent ourselves. These kids still need our help. How do you get to them? So what we decided to do is, uh, I don't know if you can see this, we came up with UCSD students. We, we came up with a very bright, colorful brochure that we literally put up everywhere that we can in San Diego, near toilets, near fast food restaurants, near libraries where the homeless kids go. So when the homeless kids see it and read it about what the resources they can get from calling us, we've been getting called by the droves. And it's a whole different deal now that they're coming to us. And because we have a quick response time, literally within 20 minutes, if we are on the phone with someone, within 20 minutes, we'll get back to them, which is very rare for that to happen so quickly. And sometimes it takes two, three, four, five days for nonprofits to get back to these kids. Within 20 minutes, we get back to them very quickly and get them the resources that they need. And they start really trusting us because of our response time. It's like, wow, 
these people really care. And in the last three years alone with COVID, we've housed 849 youth in the last three years alone because this this really works. Awesome. Uh, now tell us about the event that you have coming up. Um, we have concerts every year. Music touches people. Music has been a big part of what we've done with our music and our program. So we've been having concerts for the last 22 years. We've had 14 major concerts, seven with national headliners. And this time, it's going to be one of our funnest concerts. Casey and the Sunshine Band, three-time Grammy winner, is going to be the headliner. At UCSD, they have a wonderful new amphitheater there called the Epstein Family Amphitheater. And so for $52, someone can have a lawn seat and actually be there to support this cause or get tickets to, to not only see the homeless kids there, we always, have, we always have a homeless kid speak at the concert. And that's the highlight of the whole evening. When they hear one of our kids this past year, she was homeless from 12 to 16. She just graduated law school. And we've known her for 16 years. And so this kid grew up with our program. We got her the resource that she needed. She literally made jewelry for 15 years that put her through college. And she just literally graduated law school. She spoke at the concert. Wow. And so every year we'll have you speak at it. And it educates the community about the homeless youth issue. And they're having a great time with the music. So that's how we incorporate this. And this is July 27th. They can go to our website at doorsofchange.org. Uh, we're going to start tickets as of April. We'll start selling tickets. But if they want to be a sponsor, they can get a hold of us right now and be a sponsor with their business. They'll get a lot of publicity on it. But the most important thing is that 100% of the proceeds of any ticket price goes directly to fund our program to get kids off the streets. You're talking about UCSD. Speaking of colleges, we have a, a school up here. I'm sure you're aware of it. It's a state school, Cal State Northridge. This is an astonishing statistic. And I just heard this, that 20% of their student body is homeless. Yep. They're living in their car, they're couch surfing, but technically they're unhoused, which just makes my head explode. I can't believe it. But in California, it's not easier to be homeless, but it's it's, uh, physically easier to be homeless because of our great weather out here. So we have this astonishing problem that has affected every zip code you, you know the, the richer areas beverly hills bel-air they're homeless everywhere so it's finally getting the attention of people who have the means to do something about it yeah in our community fritz 10 percent san diego state they say that they're homeless i think there's wow. probably more students that are homeless than that but they're saying at least 10 percent of their students at san diego state are living in their cars or couch surfing so even though we've, we've seen in the last year through our HMIS system, there's been 2,600 homeless kids that have been evaluated for help. There's probably at least 1,000 or more besides it that are on the streets in San Diego. You know, that's a lot of youth that are kicked down the street, that don't want to be there, and that need help. And if we can give them a little hand up, not a hand up, but a hand up, they really can succeed with hard work. And we've had thousands of success stories over the last 22 years just by giving it a little hand up. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us to spread this word. We'll have you back on as we get closer to the event, Jeffrey. Me, can I ask him one more question? Yes. I'm sorry. Sure. What, what age is, is the most vulnerable? What, what demographic that's a, that's a good is, question. Go ahead. We, we have been working with the transitional age youth between the age of 17 and 25. That is the most underserved of the entire homeless population. Why? Because people think, oh, they're adults. You know, they, have, they can do it on their own. But the 18, 17, 18, 19-year-old kids, they might be 18 physically, 
but emotionally they might be 13 or 14 because their parents have not given them the skills to succeed. So to answer your question, the 17 to 25-year-old transitional age youth are the most underserved. However, because they haven't been on the streets that long, they're the most likely to succeed of breaking the cycle of homelessness more than any other age group of all the homeless, whether it be the vets, the adults, the families. It's the transitional age kids that if you help them, the chance of them breaking the cycle is greater than any other age group because they haven't been that screwed up with drugs, alcohol. They're not that emotionally or mentally ill compared to people that are on the streets for 20, 30, 40 years. And so that's why we've had many kids at that age group that have broken the cycle and, and become role models, really examples of what other youth say, wow, they've done it, maybe I can do it. It gives them hope that they can break the cycle. You're doing great work, Jeffrey. Keep it up. Just so wonderful. We, we appreciate anybody come to the website and check it out. See the see the uh, ads, see the, the interviews by the kids. And if you can make a donation, we need all the help we can get. We, we need to have more case managers to help more of these kids. Oh, okay. We need more case managers. You're going to have everything you need in our show notes. So don't, don't do anything dangerous while you're driving or running with your dog. <laughs> it's all going to be in the show notes. And uh, we absolutely adore what you're doing, Jeffrey. So, so vital. And thank you so much for the work that you do. Thank you for having me. I really do appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, Jeffrey. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, Fritz, are you ready for our next guest? I, I'm so looking forward to this conversation. I'm so excited. Stephen Talbot is a TV documentary producer, reporter, and writer. He recently directed and produced The Movement and The Madman for American Experience on PBS. He is a longtime contributor to PBS, creating over 40 films for Frontline, many PBS biographies, and the music specials, soundtracks, music without borders. Steve's showbiz journey began early as a child actor, and you probably know him as Beaver's buddy Gilbert Bates. Welcome, Steve. Nice to be here. Yes, if you have a thermometer, would you take your temperature for us right now so we can make yeah, sure we, we're not... You're not running yeah, a fever. And, uh, I've been cold, but I've survived. Oh, no, we're going to get you through. We'll, we'll make this very, very painless. In a lot of ways, you had the ideal child actor experience where you worked a lot, you were on an indelible show, but you were still free to carve out your own adult trajectory and make human mistakes without a ton of judgment. So talk about that, if you would. That's a really interesting point, Luis. I once had that conversation with Tony Dow, who played Wally, mm-hmm. the older brother, believe it to Beaver. He died not so long ago. Um, but Tony and I met up years later, and he said, you know, Steve, you really had, you had the best advantages. Mm-hmm. You had all the pleasure of being on the show without being typecast. People remember, if they're hardcore Leave it to Beaver fans, they remember the character of Gilbert. I'm glad they do. And it was great, great fun to do it when I was a kid. But um, I didn't want to do it as an adult. I did not want to be an actor as an adult. I wanted to be, as it turned out, a broadcast journalist, which is what I became. So Tony said, look, you know, you you had the advantage of, of being a childhood actor, having a lot of fun, making a little money. And then you moved on to the next stage of life, to another adventure. And you didn't carry that baggage around with you. I did a little bit. I did a little bit, but but not so much. So now, this stage of my life, I'm in my 70s, 74. It's great to look back at the acting I did as a kid, which I really enjoyed, and, um, and to have had the satisfaction of becoming a documentary filmmaker and working for some great shows like Frontline. 
Well, you probably had some early indication of uh, how uh, iconic beaver would be perhaps for centuries because when you were, were in college, you'd hear, I only watched beaver in reruns. I came home from school and beaver was on. So you probably realized then since it was constantly running in some sort of rerun fashion and you'd walk into a room and your college buddies would be like, are you Gilbert? So it just has never stopped playing since the moment you walked off the set, correct? Well, that's the weird thing because when we did the series, we had no idea it was still going to be around 60 years later, still on TV. It's never been off TV. Um, so what happened is none of us were aware of reruns. You know, my dad was the actor Lyle Talbot. He was a movie actor and then a, a TV sitcom actor for many, many years, the next door neighbor on the Aussie and Harriet show. And my dad mm -hmm. was one of the founders way back in the 1930s when he was a contract player at Warner Brothers. He was one of the founders of the Screen Actors Guild. And over the years, wow. the Screen Actors Guild became very powerful, important, influential union and managed to get a lot of great benefits for actors. But... And, you know, back when I was acting and he was acting on TV in the uh, late 50s, early 60s, there were residuals for repeat broadcasts, but only for six, mm. on a sharply declining scale. So you might have gotten paid, I might have gotten paid, say, $150 a day to be on Leave it to Beaver, and we'd shoot an episode in uh, three days. And that was good money at that time. But then your residual check would come when they would repeat it once, and it would be half that. By the time it got to six for some showing in Tokyo or something, it would be like you know thirty-five cents. My dad would also made all those residuals to me in college as a joke. One of the I, I think so, one of the pivotal moments in the SAG after strike recently was some actor I don't know who it was. It was an African American actor. They said, "I'm going to show you how little money TV stars make," and he showed his residual check on camera it was like 93 cents it was some ridiculous amount of money people have no right, clue now of course now if you go into a series you know Seinfeld anything that goes into syndication honestly you make a fortune but it's not true of shows like Leave it to Beaver or Ossie and Harriet those shows from the late 50s and 60s we just didn't get those kind of residuals mm -hmm. they faded away and the interesting thing you know here's Jerry Mathers the Beaver an icon, you know, for the baby boom generation, um, you know, extremely memorable. You know, and he he made money and he still makes money in autograph shows and things like that, memorabilia. But he didn't get rich making Leave it to Beaver, even though he's an icon of American TV. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about your brilliant documentary films, including the last one, The Movement and the Madman. You know, Wheezy and I are students of the baby boom culture. And uh, even knowing what we know about that period of time, Watergate and all that stuff, there were two revelations in this film for me. One was how much of an effect the anti-war movement had on changing America's mind. Because we, we thought that that was just our generation blowing off steam. But it really did. Although Nixon would never admit it, it did get under his skin. And the second thing I, I, I was really rattled by and didn't know was how close Nixon came to actually using a nuclear weapon on North Vietnam. So there, even for those of us who have studied this time period, there's a lot to learn from this thing. Well, thank you. It was a real pleasure to get to make that documentary for American Experience. 
They're still re-airing it every now and then on different public TV stations. And anyone can see it streaming online if they have PBS Passport or Amazon Prime or Canopy, the library streaming service. So it's out there for people to see, and I'd, I'd encourage anyone to watch it. But it was a great privilege to be able to make it. And it was a real research job for me. I mean, like you, Fritz, I lived through that time. I knew a lot about it. I was a participant in anti-war demonstrations in college and afterwards. And I thought I knew a lot because I really studied the war in Vietnam. And this was a revelation to me. Uh, you're absolutely right. The anti-war movement in some ways had an inferiority complex uh, that we, we never had the power uh, to end the war. And it's true. It took a long, long time, far too long to end the war in Vietnam. But at different stages of the war, the anti-war movement did really have an impact. And as you say, what we show in, in my film, which all centers on the year 1969, Nixon and Kissinger's first year in office as president, uh, Nixon and his, his security advisor, they were planning a major escalation of the war in Vietnam. Even though he said he had a secret plan to end the war and he was starting to very, very, very slowly withdraw troops, what he was really planning to do was a major escalation of the war in the fall of 69. And he was threatening secretly the Vietnamese, the North Vietnamese, and the Russians um, all throughout the year saying, look, if you don't accept our terms for a settlement, we are going to unleash holy hell. And what we're going to do, what that means is we're going to resume bombing the North. We're going to bomb the dikes. We might bomb the cities. Um, we're going to, this was all in the planning documents that we found from the National Security Council. They were going to mine, considering mining Haiphong Harbor, all sorts of things, right up in, in, in including using tactical nuclear weapons in North Vietnam. So that was the threat. And what happened, to give away my film, is that the anti-war movement just happened to be planning. They had no idea what Nixon and Kissinger were doing. They just happened to be planning what turned out to be the two biggest anti-war demonstrations in the history of the United States, um, certainly to that point. Actually, the biggest demonstrations to that point around any issue in the United States. In the fall, October 15th, it was called the moratorium, and November 15th which was a giant march in Washington, as many as half a million people, and a big march, same time in San Francisco, for people living in the West. And those two massive demonstrations caused Nixon, pressured Nixon to back off. And even though he'd issued this ultimatum, uh, he writes in his own memoir, I knew I couldn't bring it off. The country would have exploded. And he, he did this thing where, he, hence the title, Madman, he wanted to do a public relations blitz, making Russia and North Vietnam think he was nuts and he was capable of anything, including dropping a tactical nuclear weapon. But it backfired because they didn't believe his bluster. <laughs> Is that right? That's right. You're absolutely right. Nixon had this theory um, called the Madman Theory, and he confided it to his closest advisors. He never said it publicly. And the madman theory was, if I act crazy, like I'll do anything, including using nuclear weapons in a war, then I can force my adversary to do whatever I want. And that was his theory. But you're absolutely right. Uh, the Russians didn't think he was that crazy. 
And the North Vietnamese, honestly, were so devoted to their struggle for independence that they were willing to go through anything. And what's interesting uh, about Nixon's behavior during that time period, his reaction to the protest was that he just attacked the media. Like the moral majority isn't in the corner of the media and they're spinning it this way. So he does this onslaught, this attack of the media. And then in like the next era of right wing politics, they attempt to control the media by creating Fox News. So it's like if you can't beat them, become them kind of a thing. And like you've seen over the years, the right trying every possible maneuver to have a stronghold over over society exactly he he had the silent minority and trump has MAGA nation you know and it's almost the same thing isn't it but it comes on the tails of nixon you have you have murdoch and you and you have uh you know fox news and you have that whole wave you know and after and you've done documentaries at at, at every point of this progression right so you did newt gingrich rush limbaugh i mean because like newt gingrich sort of like sending those tapes around that's the beginning of talk radio people became addicted to hearing those talking points of like yeah you know and then so rush limbaugh comes in but speak speak to that speak to the trajectory of your or the arc of you know the stories that you choose to cover because we see these patterns yes well look you're really right at the heart of the matter here what happened is that October 15th moratorium, which was an innovative idea for the anti-war movement, the idea was to have demonstrations all across America, not just in the big cities on the coast, but everyone could come out and have teach-ins, sit-ins, uh, protests, marches, anything you wanted to do, prayer vigils against the war in Vietnam. And that was enormously successful. And it really shows that the anti-war movement, you know, people have a stereotype of the anti-war movement, which is partly true, of being all long hairs and rat long haired folks and radicals and so forth. And there was definitely that element for sure. But the anti-war movement was really broad, involved all sorts of faith and religious leaders. Um, in the in sixty-nine, the fall, the United Auto Workers came out against the war in Vietnam, which was a first for a, the biggest uh, union in the United States. So politicians, there were, there were Republicans who were starting to come out against the war in that moratorium. So that moratorium was like amazing. And it blew They had off. Vietnam vets coming home and protesting. Oh, John Kerry and, it, and everybody. Were. Yeah, the, that, that was a, a turning point, too. The Vietnam vets were coming home and protesting what they had just been through. That's which right. Which was very, That's very right. moving. This, the early march in 69 was actually led by Coretta Scott King mm. and uh, Senator Goodell, who is a Republican from New York, and George McGovern, a Democrat from South Dakota. And right behind that line of um, eminent people, there were uh, Vietnam vets who had come back uh, uh, opposed to the war. And then flash forward a few years later, and I actually made a film about that, about this, um, a large contingent of Vietnam veterans against the war, about 5,000 camped out on the Washington Wall in uh, 1971, the spring of 71. That's where John Kerry uh, was active, okay. uh, testified before Congress, and the veterans went up to the Capitol steps and threw their medals away, explaining in a microphone why they were doing it, why they had turned against the war. That's still the oh, most man. emotional, powerful Absolutely. demonstration. Absolutely. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And you were there, Steve? I was, and I filmed it. Okay. I filmed it. Wow. Filmed it for now, actually. Um, and, but to go back to your point, Louis, before, you know, 
the the media, the the quote mainstream media, uh, including people like Walter Cronkite, had a very positive reaction to the moratorium. So the moratorium got favorable press. Mm-hmm. It was on the cover of Time Magazine, Life Magazine, uh, all the networks did specials on it, and it got very favorable coverage. That freaked out Nixon and his administration. And that's when they decided to say, okay, we know we've got this other big demonstration coming up in November. We've got to unleash the whirlwind against the media. And he really went on the offensive, as you said. And the person who did it, you may recall, was mm-hmm. his vice president, Spiro Agnew. Who's going to be out of office for crimes within yeah. a year. The nattering nabobs of negativism. Who, who will ever forget that uh, one? Uh, yeah. <laughs> that, and that's the beginning. I think you're right. Um, that's the beginning of, of an administration in the United States turning on the media, mm-hmm. saying that media's fault, that these demonstrators are in the street and threatening the media in all sorts of ways um, to shut them down if, uh, if they keep it up. And in fact, the media coverage of the November 15th demonstration was much more restrained. Oh, really? Uh, it's very peaceful and very large. But the coverage was not as widespread, and it was more restrained. So he had them on their back foot. He was he was playing the umps. Wow, that's right. And then, as you spun it out, this goes. This gets picked up later. Um, this this the strategy of attacking the media, um, really by people like Newt Gingrich and and uh, Rush Limbaugh. And you're absolutely right. For Frontline, I did investigative biographies of both of them. Yeah. And then we have Roger Ailes and we have, you know, him, you know, calling the White House. So like, what would you like our reporters to say tonight? You know, so <laughs> Newt Gingrich, you know, has the early incarnation of this. Newt Gingrich, we found out at the time, he used to call Rush Limbaugh and say, OK, here's what's going on today. I'm going to introduce this bill. This is the this is our talk. These are our talking points around this bill. You start the day before and also tell people to send in telegrams or whatever it was. And Rush Rush did what he was told. They do that at Fox News now. They have, no, a, the, they, the, have a, they have the editorial meeting at 9 o'clock in the morning, and they decide what their talking point that day is going to be, and they're off to the races. No, but they nowadays it's a little different because they get their early morning call from Putin, and then they, <laughs> and then they just plan from there. Good point. And at Long Vestance. <laughs> I've always had a, a, a fascination with the relationship between Kissinger and Nixon. Lots have been Never. written about that uh, pseudo friendship in the Watergate stuff, but they were kind of like the sunshine boys of the Hawks. I, I was wondering if, it, it, was where did the genius come from? Was Nixon the, the fabricator of all these harebrained ideas and it was just Kissinger's job to figure out how to make them happen? Or was Kissinger the genius and he convinced Nixon to do what he wanted? That's a fascinating question. And I asked that of every one of the Kissinger aides we interviewed. I, I, I really wanted to tell this film from two points of view, the movement, the madman, looking at the anti-war movement, finding out who was really in the anti-war movement, what, what their thinking, their planning, their strategies were. And then looking at these events in the same year, 1969, from inside the White House. So I got three people who were among Kissinger's highest aides, Morton Halperin and Tony Lake and Roger Morris 
Tony Lake, incidentally, would go on to become Bill Clinton's national security advisor. Mm. He took over the job that Kissinger once had. So these were very high-ranking guys. They were relatively young at the time. And the reason they went to work for Kissinger is that Kissinger hired them saying, look, we know this war in Vietnam is a loser. We're not going to win it. And we want to end it. So come help me end it. Now, once they got into the administration, they saw that that was essentially a lot, that Nixon in particular wanted to string out the war as long as possible. Nixon knew the war was a loser too by then, that he was not going to win. But he didn't want to make it look like a loss. He wanted it as long an interval as possible. So under pressure for the anti-war movement and people within his own administration, his own defense secretary, Melvin Laird, pushed more and more to basically move toward ending the draft, which is extremely unpopular, and to begin troop withdrawals, although he did it very, very slowly. The tragedy of all this is that Nixon could have ended the war in 1969, his first year in office, on virtually the same terms that he and Kissinger finally agreed to in the Paris Peace Treaty that they signed with the North Vietnamese in January 73. So how many people, so both of the people who died in yes. the interval, died for no reason? Including Vietnamese people. Who, yes, millions. Millions. And, and, you know, Nixon and Johnson had the same mandate in their souls. Neither wanted to be the person that was the first to lose an American war. And, exactly. and, and Johnson admitted it publicly, and Nixon was just trying to figure out how to manipulate it so he didn't take the blame for it. <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's like, look, it's like McNamara, who I interviewed years ago for another film. And, you know, as you know, McNamara, an architect of the Vietnam War with Lyndon Johnson, um, he, in his old age, um, wrote kind of an apology uh, about it, Requiem, this book, and actually went to North Vietnam and saying the war was wrong. But the tragedy and the awful part about his story again is that McNamara had come to that conclusion um, during the Johnson administration, and he could have gone public and wow. said that. But I asked him why he didn't, and he said, well, I just couldn't challenge the president. I couldn't go public defying this man I was serving. So he kept silent about that, about how the war was rolling on a mistake. Uh, for decades. Tell us uh, some of the other people that you interviewed because their accounts provide the, or make up the, you know, the voiceover for your film. Like, and it's, you have so many different voices in this film. So t talk about some of the people that you spoke to. Well, uh, two people who, whose names will not ring a bell with most people. Um, Sam Brown. Sam Brown was an amazing guy. Sam Brown was um, from a conservative Republican family in the Midwest. His dad owned a shoe store. Um, but he went to college and he, he sort of became more and more liberal. And he ended up supporting Eugene McCarthy. You may recall mm -hmm. McCarthy, the senator from Minnesota, yep. challenged yeah. Lyndon Johnson during the New Hampshire primary in 68. Yeah. It did very, very well. So well that Johnson ended up dropping out of the race. Right. So Sam Brown was famous within the political world in 1968 as this young guy who had the magic touch 
about being able to organize college students and other young people to come to New Hampshire to cut their hair to be clean for Gene, which was the, <laughs> the slogan, and to go door to door talking about the war in Vietnam to people in New Hampshire, which was then an extremely <laughs> conservative state. And it was really, really effective. So Sam Brown's the guy who came up with the idea for the moratorium. Um, he was teaching a seminar at Harvard, actually, and made it a class project. If you wanted to end the war in Vietnam, how would you do it? And they came up with this idea of the moratorium. So he, he was an amazing guy and uh, a really effective political organizer. You know, I, I have a, a personal story, if you'll forgive me uh, for a second, about what happened at the peak of the moratorium times and the protest times. I was in the Navy from 69 to 72, and I was stationed in Europe on an aircraft carrier. And at the time, the chief of naval operations was a guy by the name of Admiral Elmo Zumwalt. He was in charge of the Navy. And he would send out these Z-grams, which were like weekly diatribes about how to be the perfect sailor. And we'll never forget the time. We're over in Europe, and because the anti-war, as a matter of fact, the anti-war fervor, you might uh, know this, Steve, it reached a, a higher pitch in Europe before it did in the United States. Europeans yeah. hated the fact that we were there. So we're yeah. going on leave in places like Naples and Mallorca and all these places, and sailors are getting the crap beat out of them because of people's anti-war fervor. So Zumwalt sent this gram and said, from now on until further notice, you are allowed to wear civilian clothes and wear your hair slightly longer than would be regulation until this anti-American military fervor goes down. It was a pretty scary time, but it, it kind of proved to us, you know, when it works its way into the Defense Department, all hell's breaking loose back in the country. Wow, that, that's a fascinating story. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's interesting. Now, uh, you have you've made I don't know how many documentaries, but how what informs what you're going to do next and how do you get there and then how do you begin your research once you've decided on uh, on a project? Well, I'll tell you what my next project coming up is. Okay. Um do you two in LA um remember the cafeteria called Clifton's? Yes. It's okay. a magical place. So Clifton's was started um, by my oldest friend's grandfather. Okay. His name was Clifford Clinton. And he had told me the story I'm about to tell you for years. So he and I, his name is David Davis. He is a filmmaker too. We started making films together in college, in fact. Dave and I um, are working with public TV in Los Angeles, KCT and PBS SoCal. Okay. I'm developing a project that's the working cafeteria kid because in the <laughs> 30s, that's what the newspapers um, called him, mocking him. He was a really successful businessman who started these kind of fanciful cafeterias in downtown LA in the 30s, in the Depression. Uh, he made money, became a well-to-do man, but he also fed people for free during the Depression. Wow. And was, he was kind of famous for that in L.A. at the time. But what happens to him is that he gets drawn in to an investigation of corruption uh, in, with the food service at L.A. County Hospital. And he, he doesn't really want to do it, but he does. And long story short, 
he traces back the corrupt contracting uh, for the food back to the mayor, mayor office. And long story short, he keeps pulling the thread and he discovers that in the late thirties in Los Angeles, there's no mafia, but organized crime, prostitution, gambling, uh, everything is run, controlled, overseen by the mayor of Los Angeles, Frank Shaw, and the LA Police Department. Wow. Oh, man. That would make a great especially, movie. Especially the Red Squad, the Spy Squad. Okay. Uh, a really psychopathic leader. And and when he, a war breaks out in LA over this. Is that kind of like the Mulholland Falls period? Absolutely. I mean, okay. this is Chinatown. Okay. This is yeah. Chinatown. That would make just a great feature film right there. Okay. It, I think so, too. I think so, too. <laughs> Uh, but we're going to start with the documentary. And, uh, you know, what happens is they, they go to war, basically. They bomb his house. They blow up his private detective in a car bomb. Wow. The police do this. Wow. Um, and in the end, they recall the mayor of Los Angeles. He organizes a very large, broad scale movement in L.A. in 1938. Frank Shaw is recalled. The, the DA is recalled. And they elect a, a, a judge who's a clean government uh, type who runs L.A. for the next 12 years throughout World War II and so forth. Oh. Well, I know you're, you're, you're nursing a cold, so I'm wondering if before you go, if you're willing to play a round of Leave it to Beaver trivia. <laughs> okay. okay. All right. Okay. But if, if I get anything <laughs> wrong, it's the medicine talking. I will, yeah, and I will edit that out if that. I, it's very, it's very unlikely that that will happen, but I'll, I'm going to make you look good. Okay, question number one: You portrayed Beaver's best friend at the same time your dad was appearing on TV as Ozzie Nelson's best friend. Who? Joe Randall. Exactly, that is character. a correct answer, Steve. Number two: How many times did Leave It to Beaver appear in the top ten in the ratings? Never. It's a trick question. Never. That is a correct answer. Number three. In 1962, what shows appeared before and after Leave it to Beaver? And what shows appeared against it on NBC and CBS? Wow, I have no idea. But it's interesting, right? Because I only think of Leave it to Beaver as coming on after school. I don't think of it as being in, in a lineup. Okay, so Leave it to Beaver came on at 830. This is in 1962. But you can look, you can look at the lineup of every year on Wikipedia it's very interesting. So leave it to Beaver because it's it's interesting because nowadays everybody's watching everything, but back then you had a choice of three programs. Mm-hmm. So leave it to Beaver came on at eight thirty on ABC after Donna Reed and before My Three Sons. It was wow. on, yeah, Holy it was God. on up against Perry Mason, which you were also on, and Fritz was on, which he can tell you about after this quiz. Perry Mason was on CBS, and Doctor Kildare was on NBC. Is it just me? Or should the word kill not be contained within the name of a TV doctor? I don't know. It could be just me. (laughs) Number four, who were Beaver and Gilbert's teachers? Uh, The Mrs. Randall was the Sue Randall. Yes. but She was the actual, Mrs. Landers was the name. Correct. And who was there maybe before you got to the cast, but who was there like in second grade or yeah, I was, I, was, I was not in the first year and a half of the six-year series, so, so the, I missed that. 
Okay, so the first teacher was Miss Canfield, played by Diane Brewster, and then Miss Landers, played by Sue Randall. And do you remember the principal's name? Oh, she was such a great actress. Yeah. She was very, very funny. Um, I can't think of her name right now, but she was a wonderful actor. (laughs) It was Mrs. Rayburn, and she was played by Doris Packer. Doris, yes, exactly. Uh Uh-huh. Okay, Man, this you is... were getting most of these right. I was like, you're immune to NyQuil. Your 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 drugs aren't <laughs> slowing you down at all. All right, this is the last question, number five. Where did Gilbert, Larry, and Whitey hide out to get a peek at Mrs. Landers when she came over to Beaver's house for dinner? Uh, I remember this very well. We were in a tree. <laughs> so how did which spoil it was a fake tree on a studio set? <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask you how they filmed that. <laughs> indoors, indoors. <laughs> Let me, let me ask you one final question, uh, Steve. I happen to think that Frontline and American Experience are like the premier documentaries in all of television. They really are. So do you come up with the idea and go pitch them and then they pay to have you shoot it? Or do you shoot it and edit it and say, here's this thing, would you like to buy it? How does that whole process work? Mainly those two series work with independent producers. Mm-hmm. Um, occasionally over the years, they've had a few staff producers but it's usually you work as an independent. Now, Frontline, I worked for Frontline from 92, was the first documentary I made for Frontline, a film called The Best Campaign Money Could Buy, about the uh, Clinton-Bush race for president in mm-hmm. 92. Um, and I worked for them then all the way from 92 to about 2008. Uh, for a while, I managed a part of Frontline that was called Frontline World, which was a very interesting experience, sending a lot of younger reporters off around the world to cover um, more international news in the wake of 9-11. So uh, they kicked me upstairs from being a reporter, producer, writer, uh, to being a senior producer the last few years I was there. Um, The American Experience Project I just did, The Movement and the Madman, uh, we started that as an independent project PBS uh, came in very early on saying they wanted it as a national special. And then uh, toward the end of production, American Experience contacted us and said they really liked it. Could they run it? And they were very helpful in getting us across the finishing line, finish line and on the air. So, you know, I have I have nothing but respect um, have for both of those oh, series. Unbelievable. And, uh, and it's been a privilege to work for both of them. Another great thing about him, I lived in, I've lived in San Francisco for over 40 years. Um, both of those series are based at WGBH in Boston, um, which is a real centerpiece for PBS production. Mm-hmm. So I would frequently fly back and forth from San Francisco to Boston. I spent a lot of time in Boston, but they always let me live here, which was great. And the announcer on Frontline, what's that guy's name? Will Lyman. Will voice Lyman. Of God. When I pass Lord. away... When I pass away, I would like yeah. Will Lyman to make the announcement to the world. Because that dude, we all, he we has all. an <laughs> astonishing voice. I want to talk. He has I, amazing advice, and he's a very smart man, I'll tell you. When he reads your script, he goes through it, and if he has any questions about anything, you'll hear it from And um, he's, he's a sharp guy. He's a sharp guy. I'm not surprised. Hey, before we go, even if you can't use this on the air, Louise, you asked before uh, something about, you know, reruns with leave it to beaver right here's what happened with leave it to beaver when i was doing it especially after i'd been on for you know five years or so occasionally i'd get stopped in the street and go hey you're gilbert 
but not much. And then it went off the air. And so I went to high school and no one talked about my being on Leave it to Beaver ever. And then I went to college and it went into rerun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I had no idea this was going to happen. So suddenly I'm at college. I'm getting very political. I'm, you know, going out on dates with, you know, sophisticated East Coast girls. And I walk into uh, a door and everyone's sitting around watching Star Trek and Leave it to Beaver. So there was a period in my life when it was agonizingly embarrassing to be spotted as very Gilbert. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. but, but there's uh, also that moment where you were speaking at a protest and you spotted a sign out in the crowd, and what did it say? Yeah, that was some uh, conservative students who didn't like my stance against the war, and we were about to take part in the National Student Strike of 1970, which is when Nixon invaded Cambodia, Kent State shootings happened and all that, and I was uh, organizing my college campus to go out on strike and protest, and these students put up a poster in the dining room, college dining room that said, uh, Strike? Question mark. GB, I don't know. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. Which is, if, if Gilbert has a catchphrase, that's it. That was it. Yeah, very <laughs> funny. Because usually Beaver was saying the thing that would have been within the rules, and Gilbert was saying, GB, I don't know, about following rules, because he had a better <laughs> idea that was much more dangerous. I always used to say that uh, the character of Gilbert was Eddie Haskell White. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much, because he did have a soul. Yes, he did have a soul. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And, and toward the end of the series, became more of a friend of the character of Bieber than the guy who always got into trouble and then ran away. You do wonder why Wally's best friends were just two assholes. <laughs> you know? Because he no could have, you know, that guy could have been friends with anybody. He's picking Eddie exactly. and Lumpy. At least Beaver had a little bit. Richard and you were, you know, pretty good kids, pretty good friends. But I want to ask one more question before we go, because I'm I'm obsessed by your body of work. And I think there should be a channel that just just plays your films, because there really is an arc and a trajectory to history that I'm I'm very fascinated by. So in Justice for Sale, you're sitting or your producers are sitting with Justices Breyer and Kennedy. And those two guys are complaining about how in certain states, judges run for office. And so you can pump money into campaigns and pretty much you can populate the entire justice system with people that that are going to vote in your favor if you're big business. And and as we know, Kennedy steps down mysteriously, you know, paving the way for Kavanaugh, who's been bought and paid for by even more sort of cynical elements in society that kind of like are a, a um, coalition of big business and dark money and religious ideology and, and everything. Mm-hmm. Do you have any, any theories as to why Kennedy stepped down when he did? Well, that's an amazing question. Yeah, it's really weird. Bill Moyers was the correspondent on that show, Justice for Sale. I wrote it with him and I produced it. Mm-hmm. And it was amazing to get interviews with sitting justices of the Supreme Court. Yeah. But Breyer, who was from San Francisco, and Anthony Kennedy were both really on the war path against campaign finance ruining judicial independence. So we heard them out and let them have their say and were impressed. And then, you know, whatever it was, 10 years later, 
all of a sudden Kennedy does a total 180 and supports Citizens United unlimited. Oh, right. Action. The biggest mistake ever made in the history of the Supreme Court. But it's not a mistake. It's It was deliberate. So the yeah. question is why? Mm-hmm. And I, why he flipped, why Kennedy flipped on that, I don't know. Uh, pressure from his right-wing associates. I mean, he was always a bit of a swing vote. Um, he was a moderate conservative, I guess you could say. Were there any uh, yacht voyages that we didn't... <laughs> lawyers and I did a did a follow-up asking that same question. We, we never got, the, we never could figure out why. Well, we have to trace his travel history. Yeah, interesting how what the, your ha- film resonates now with all we're going through with oh, Clarence Thomas and the whole deal. Yes, I mean, yikes. absolutely. So that's why lo- that's watching, what- you know, the films that you sent us to watch that were done in the 90s were so prescient and, mm-hmm. and fascinating to watch. Mm-hmm. And, and so thank you so much for the work that you do. It's just, it's so important and it, it's just... Uh, intriguing your life is fascinating you get to learn so much it's like you're constantly in in grad school and it must be really gratifying that's that's really one of the reasons i became a journalist i'm, I'm a very curious person i like to know what's going on and if there's a mystery i like to try to solve it. and it's been a way to have that kind of a life where you're constantly researching and investigating checking things out that you're curious about steve we'd love to have you come back on when you're finished clifton's and uh yeah come we have over a big la audience and is that going to be on just on kcet and public uh, television socal or all over the united states uh we're um it's it's initially uh, uh something we're working up with them but they and us dave davis and myself would very much like it to be a national show well we'll help we you think- promote it if you want and you'll yeah. be you'll be in LA filming, and you can come over to the studio in person. Cool, we'd love Great. to have you. All right, yeah. All right, thank you so much, Steve. All right, okay. here. Is there anything? Why? Is there anything else you wanted to mention, Steve, before I read the credits? Uh no, that's fine. But he wants I, to go I, back I, to I, bed. I'm someone who likes to talk, even with a cold. So I'd go on forever. Cut you were, me off. You were awesome. We could talk to you forever. I, I, we really could. Okay, here come your credits. This completes another edition of Media Path featuring you as our valued listener. We would love to continue this conversation with you on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at Media Path Pod, and on Facebook, where our show page is Media Path Podcast, and our Facebook group is Media Path with Fritz and Wheezy Podcast Community. You can find full video podcast episodes loaded with bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, Media Path Podcast, and you can write to us at mediapathpodcast at gmail.com. And if you enjoy the show, please give us a nice rating wherever you get your podcast and talk about us on social media or loudly near an open window. You can sign up for our saucy rag of a newsletter at mediapathpodcast.com. We want to thank our guests, Jeffrey Sitkoff and Stephen Talbot. Our team includes producer Dina Friedman, John Maddox, Bill Filipiak, Thomas Hubble, Mason Brown, Garrett Arch, Chris Baldwin, Jordan Reyes, and you. Our theme music is by me and John Maddox. I am Louise Planker, here with Fritz Coleman and Stephen Talbot. Be well and wise, and we will see you along the media path. Well done, Steve. Feel better. Thank you so much. It was a fascinating conversation. Yeah, we just really love talking with you, and uh, we appreciate your work so much. So.